Hello, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to give you another reminder that our episode 200 is coming up very shortly. We have one more episode to go before we reach there, and we want to make the episode about our listeners and about the history of the show. So if you want to send us an email, send us an audio clip, write us a note on social media about any questions you may have, uh, any thoughts you may have on the show we would love to incorporate them into that 200th episode. So you can do that on all of our social media platforms and you can email us at podcast at irenicast.com. We already have some submissions flowing in. So thank you all who have sent something in so far, but we want to hear more. We're greedy. We're insatiable. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, what I'm saying, but we do want to hear from you. So please send us in your submissions. We'd love to incorporate it again into the episode 200 and you can do that. And we're going to have to put a deadline on this. So get all of your submissions, all of your questions, all of your auto audio clips to us by Thursday, April 7th, 2022. That's Thursday, April 7th, 2022. And you can get all the ways to reach us in our show notes for this episode at irenicasa.com slash one nine eight. That's irenicast.com slash one nine eight. We can't wait to hear from you and on with today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast, a group of folks leaning into our progressive Christian imagination. I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we provoke conversation for shifting perspectives on theology and culture. Thank you for joining us. This week, I think we're going to address the elephant in the room. It has been an insane month for the world at large, and uh, we have a a major war brewing. So we're going to talk war from a theological perspective, from a progressive Christian theological perspective. None of us are geopolitical analysts or anything like that. So uh, we won't be talking necessarily. I mean, we'll be addressing the specific things that are happening right now, but we will be mostly concentrating on the theology of war, (laughs) if that's how we want to put it. And we're going to be having a good discussion on there. Unfortunately, this week, Casey is on assignment, but I have with me the great Rajiv and the wonderful Bonnie, who will be engaging in this conversation together. And for our segment, we're going to try a new one. We're going to give it a whirl. It's called Connecting the Dots. We'll see how it goes. It should be fun. Let's uh, kind of start this off. I think when we we talk about war, it's a heavy subject. Our ancient text has a lot of war and and violence in it that has caused some within certain paths of Christianity to openly endorse and approve and almost sometimes yearn for armed conflict. And uh, others read those same passages and books and have that same text and go a completely different route. Uh, For those of you who've been listening for a very long time, you know that we've touched on this subject here and there throughout the course of the show with myself and Mona and Alan. And uh, I think everything happening on the world stage makes this a relevant conversation uh, for right now. And I think it's a, it can be confusing what we do with that and how we interpret that from a progressive Christian perspective. So Bonnie, Rajiv, thoughts. Let, let's you guys get the, the ball rolling. Uh, well, b- before we go off too f- far, I actually want to ask Bonnie, who has studied a fair amount on peace and the movement of peace to kind of give us an arc, because I learned through her 
who was learning in a class in seminary about how things kind of started on these shores in a way of the modern peace movement. So I think it'd be cool to outline that history, Bonnie. Yeah, I I was able to take a class in seminary on radical pacifism, and it was like super fascinating. It wasn't taught specifically from a Christian perspective. It was it was taught more in a historical sense, and I learned a lot. And you know, we often on on this podcast focus on the American tradition of violence and oppression. We don't always lift up the American tradition of radical pacifism. It was before the Civil War in the United States, William Lloyd Garrison and some others who were working together in New York, they were abolitionists, and they firmly believed that there could be an end to slavery without one single shot fired. And they worked, you know, desperately to try to prevent what ended up being be, becoming the Civil War, but also to lift up a kind a version of Christianity that was well pretty pretty much an American version of Christianity that painted Jesus as like the supreme pacifist, and that if one was to be a follower of Jesus, then one could not pick up arms. In fact, our tradition, the Seventh Day Adventist tradition, is you know it's it's a, a little bit of a thread from that movement made its way into the Seventh-day Adventist tradition because if you were Seventh-day Adventist, you had to be a conscientious objector if there was ever some sort of conscription into the military. You know, the two extremes, right? Violence and oppression, very much a part of our history, and also this very radical pacifism. It was William Lloyd Garrison who, through his writings, they became known to Leo Tolstoy in Russia later on, which is kind of interesting, that Russia also has a tradition of radical pacifism. And then it was through uh, Tolstoy that Gandhi sort of learned a little bit about the peace movement. And he filtered his understanding of radical pacifism through his uh, Indian philosophy, Hindu philosophy, and so on. And then it was through Gandhi that Dr. King kind of learned a little bit about radical pacifism. So we have we have sort of this international movement um, across the ocean where, talk about connect the dots, right? William Lloyd Garrison, Tolstoy, Gandhi, and then back to Dr. King. And um, our more recent radi- radical pacifist or nonviolent uh, political movements were certainly the civil rights movement of the 60s. So that's a little bit of an outline, as I remember it anyways, from my class. Right. And and also, just to add to that, from an even longer tradition of pacifism, I mean, the early Christians uh, refusing right. to join the Roman army. And part of that, part of the reason of some of the first waves of persecution for Christianity is that being a central tenet to its, in its infancy. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like... It was an American idea for sure. Right. <laughs> it Absolutely. was a very old Christian idea. For sure. It, well, we're However, just, so ahead. was war. Yes. <laughs> very much so. Right. And I think I think that's that's kind of the interesting place that we stand is because as American Christians, it's important for us to see that in our own culture, but then also the greater heritage of Christianity in general, that this is something that that is not new. It maybe gets lost from time to time, um, unfortunately, but it is it is there. I know for me, my 
big turn was reading a lot of uh, Yoder early on. And, uh, you know, while I was still in evangelical circles, I was a pacifist, which in my particular evangelical circles brought a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of, uh, <laughs> criticism, uh, for that. And, uh, you know, I, and Yoder good writings, problematic in a lot of ways, which, uh, if you want to learn about that, you can, you can do that. He's not a pacifist in certain ways for sure, but, um, still influential writings for me at least. So, so what are some like places in the Bible where peace, pacifism, and war are, you know, part of the text? My go-to was always my interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly Matthew 5, that version of it. That's really what started me down the path of, of being a pacifist myself and recognizing th the, like, you, you know, the wording that you're using, Bonnie, like radical path pacifism, that it's not non-confrontational, right? It's not, it's not passive. It's very active. And some insights that I was able to read about the Sermon on the Mount in particular were really life-changing for me. You know, there's the explicit part, uh, you know of, uh, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, but then, you know, walk, a, walk a mile in or walk an extra mile, uh, turn the other cheek, all that kind of stuff. And really having context for how aggressively peaceful those instances were, was really formative for me in kind of settling in this place of peace. Yeah. And it, but it becomes complicated for me because, you know, I, I like to call myself a radical pacifist in many ways, but radical pacifism means that one does not return violence with violence ever, like even, even in self-defense, like Jesus, right? He's the example that many Christians lift up as an example of a radical pacifist who did not defend himself when violence was inflicted upon him and in fact instructed his followers specifically not to defend themselves which you know in some ways is a departure from some of the other christian writings as well because if you read the book of revelation you know you've got this christ figure who rides it basically is a a warrior figure who comes and destroys the devil or whatever and and uh, takes over the world as a conqueror especially now that we are living through a time where it seems really clear to me the right and the wrong side of this current geopolitical conflict it has certainly in me anyway created some inner conflict around what i think about war and peace from my faith from the place of faith i don't know if that's true for anybody else yeah, I mean, I've always, well, I shouldn't say always, but I've held for a very long time that pacifism, in my perspective, is possible in privileged settings. You know, even I think about Dr. King, I think about Gandhi, I think about some of these other large movements that were nonviolent. There were people with, you know, a charge to protect the peace with force of those marchers and protesters so they could exercise their their freedoms and express themselves so while the the nonviolent movement was nonviolent they were shielded to a degree by folks willing to 
use force to keep things at bay. And and I wonder in Ukraine in particular, you know, we're hearing stories of grandmas and grandpas and, you know, maybe people who, you know, a lot of folks that don't own weapons of any sort of military kind are trying to get them now so they can defend their homes and their homeland. Whereas I think maybe a year ago, they'd be like, no, I'm, I'm maybe I'm a nonviolent adherent. So I, I don't know that we can really answer that for ourselves till we're faced with something like, you know, the example of Jesus where he was faced with physical harm. So he, he proved it, it bore out that he really was a nonviolent soul. And, and I, and I would I'll also add to that Gandhi where after he's shot while he's falling to the ground and being held up by his supporters, he's telling them all, don't harm that man. Don't, don't harm him. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's some next level shit, man. <laughs> right. Right. And I think maybe part of the framework we were given and inherited in negative ways was trying to discover what's right and wrong. And I think that with this, with this issue in particular, yes, theologically, I'm a pacifist. Um, but practically, it's not always easy. And it's not a, a, a privileged person going around telling people that they should only eat organic, like that same posture where it's like, this is always true, no matter what, I don't care what your circumstances are, and and how the privilege enters into that. And we see this. I mean, we've seen this a lot of times, staunch pacifists, you know, having being in a situation that then becomes unbearable. And, you know, the the main example I think of is, is Bonhoeffer, where staunch pacifist, but was involved in an assassination plot against Hitler. Like, what do you do in the face of that kind of evil? I think when we let go of the desire to be right or wrong or make it an, a, a theological exercise or, you know, thinking in the eyes of God what's right or wrong and really concentrating on our circumstances, because I believe that our circumstances matter a whole heck of a lot. You know, that's that's life, right? Like, we we experience new things and our ideas about that stuff changes. I think, like you were saying, Jeff, there's probably no need to be an evangelist about these right. positions. Yes, that's a right? much better way to put it. That, <laughs> Absolutely. That really, it really is important to have people who are looking at these conflicts from many sides. And so we do need the radical pacifist who is willing to, for political reasons, for social reasons, for something bigger than than themselves, to to commit to nonviolence and to be able to commit to nonviolence. And I don't I don't know if that has anything to do with one's soul as much as it has to do with one's convictions and one's choice to enact those convictions. And then we probably also need people who are doing some really deep, thoughtful work around the ethics of war, you know, which is also in the progressive Christian tradition, this just war theory. Um, President Obama has uh, cited himself or has credited just war theory to the way that he thinks about conflict around the world, which I always, you know, at the time when he was president, I was like, oh, brother, you know, why is he like that? But it's not like the theory is some sort of surface level, just it's convenient for us right now to, you know, we're being attacked and so we want to retaliate. So let's just, 
say that we're just war theorists and let's just go ahead and retaliate. It's not it's not a simple theory like that. It's actually super complex and it takes so many things into account. You know, the the people in World War II, the scientists who created the the bomb, they created it or they came up with it with this high view of humanity that somehow if this weapon were in existence, that human beings would rise to their higher selves every single time a conflict came up and they would find a way to negotiate a resolution to that conflict that was nonviolent, or at least less violent, certainly, than dropping a bomb. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of it, right? It's it's highly complex, and I think it should be, and I think there should be many sides to it all the time. Right. And and in that complexity, recognizing that it's not even just about the war, like the, the, the people that we vote in on economic issues and uh, all that stuff makes a huge difference. Because quite honestly, the majority of our wars, if you boil it down to why are we having this war? Well, there's money involved. Our, our interests are there, not our safety, our interests. And I don't think that we, you know, at least in our country, our rhetoric never reflects that unless you just want to attack the other side. Yeah, you know, kind of trying to dissect this topic a little bit was John Lennon's Imagine, right? He's He's got a line in that song, nothing to kill or die for. And most people, most people will say in self-defense using violence to resist harm to oneself or an innocent uh, is acceptable. But like, when is being the perpetrator of violence ever acceptable? And that's the part that I, I just don't, you know, because I think just war examines a response to aggression, not like, well, when do we strike first? Which I think is a very important value of just war theory is it is about responding to aggression and violence from another. And that's the piece. I just cannot think of a time when it's okay to perpetrate violence on another thing for whatever reason. I mean, there's, it seems like there's always other opportunities. I mean, I I agree there. Like if we're, if we're talking in terms of being, you know, the person, the first person to strike, I, I find very little, if any wiggle room at all to justify, at least from from our perspective of people who are trying to define and work through our, our, our progressive Christianity and our Christian heritage. But I think even that is muddy. It's very muddy. Like, okay. So if you're talking just about violence, is there, is there such a thing as provoking the other to violence through injustice, you know? And, and so by having so much and, and living in such excess, while others in the world are struggling, you know, is that I, at least I can understand how people might want to revolt against that, you know, or say that's not fair and and want to perhaps res- respond to that level of excess with some sort of violence. I mean, we've seen revolution after revolution around the globe where uh, people who are struggling in the shadow of folks who are have way too much way too much and don't share how they revolt and and uh, violently take out those de-oppressors. 
So um, that wasn't a violent provocation or a violent aggression. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, for and sure. Yet, and yet it sort of called, in a sense, for a violent response, perhaps. And does that count as aggression? I think it's expanding our definition of violence. Like we say physical violence. So therefore we're insinuating that there's other types of violence aside from physical violence. There's economic violence. There's, you know, there's other ways that we can, you know, perpetrate harm towards someone else through physical means or economic means or, or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think it has to all be considered in one's ethics. And I, I think we like to think that war and peace are off the table ethically for us in terms of, you know, what to think about. We, we think about race, we think about maybe gender, you know, lots of things. But we belong to a country where I don't even know the percentage of our, G, of our budget that's spent on the military, but it's a gross amount of money. You know, I don't like to think about that. I would much rather think about other social issues instead of the fact that I am supporting a huge military that has a ton of power and is involved in pretty much any violent uprising anywhere in the world. I'd rather work on other issues. <laughs> well, that's why it's such a hard issue, because it's for the most part, it's something that will always be out of our hands for the majority of everyone. Like it's not a decision that is made. It is someone that is thrust upon us by people in power. And that's why I think that what speaks so loudly in the nonviolent movement is confronting, you know, truth to power with its own violence and not back, but like forcing to be confronted by it and, and the results of it. That kind of nonviolent response takes so much courage, you know, like Rajiv was saying earlier about Gandhi, just don't, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. You know, I'd like to believe philosophically that I would be in that same place, but I, if I'm honest with myself, I probably wouldn't be. Yeah. And I think it goes back to the, one of the Roman emperors, the notion of peace through strength, because that's an argument that's heard over and over and over again in different places uh, as a justification for having a military like ours, where by having that sort of weaponry, and firepower, it deters anyone from messing with us. And therefore, you have a peace. And it's fitting that that idea comes from the Roman <laughs> emperors, because that whole, the Pax Romana, you know, I mean, okay, there might not have been a lot of uprising, but there was certainly a lot of violence. And, and there's so many Christians, you know, if we're going to, the wide path of Christianity, who you know, find comfort in that might because they associate it with the language, you know, that we see in Revelation or in the Hebrew scriptures of uh, a warrior God. And I remember I was at uh, a movie theater. Some of our conservative family really wanted us to watch this documentary film called, I think it was called 2016. It was about Obama's presidency. It was from, um, oh, what's his name? Something Souza. Um, oh God, yeah. what an embarrassment to the race. <laughs> right. Dinesh, so, Dinesh D'Souza. There you go. That's the one. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't heard anything about that, but I was like, whatever, I'll start a conversation. I'll, I'll watch this. No, it's 
2012. I don't remember what the documentary was called. I'm not even going to put it in the show notes, everyone, because it's not worth your time. But uh, <laughs> uh, there's one point where it's laying out how Obama had, um, you know, reduced the number of nuclear weapons in our country and was going through how many nuclear weapons every country has. And then how ours went from like maybe 2000 to down in the lower hundreds or something like that. I don't remember the exact number. And I was like, oh, that's like right as I was thinking, like, who has a problem with this? The entire theater was like, oh, like flabbergasted that we did. And I'm thinking, who the hell needs 2000 nuclear weapons? Like, what good is that? And I just in that moment, I did not even recognize because even in my wildest dreams, even at my most conservative, that would have seemed so asinine to me and how this has become such a value for people to to have that kind of might is uh and not even just like wealth but like like might like raw power like raw just like i can squish you into non-existence is a really weird thing for me it stayed with me for like two weeks after that i couldn't believe it yeah as horrifying as that experience must have been jeff i think it's important for us to try to find opportunities to be in spaces like that because we can begin to think that our perspective is the one that just ought to dominate in in sort of a vacuum and then we don't really know how to present to people who feel really differently in a way because i think when we go when i when i find myself in those types of encounters kind of ignorant about different like really opposition uh, opposing perspectives i can get thrown off guard and get defensive and you know, judgy. So I wonder, I'm just thinking about like, just for my own self, going through exercises of how do I thoughtfully and caringly articulate these perspectives to people who claim Christianity, but see it very differently. And I I think it's an important exercise. I'm just not sure how to go about starting to do that. That's that's a really good question. I I don't know necessarily how to answer that because it feels so so heavy, you know, but I, you know, I do think you're right. I think it's important. You know, I think it's important on all sides because I think there's still even not just in terms of right and left, but there are a lot of things outside of our perspective. Like, you know, for me, you know, you mentioning earlier, Rajiv, the, the privilege of pacifism, that's, that's real. And I was confronted with that in a big way, I believe in many different instances, but most pronounced was during the BLM protests during the, the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, it's easy f- for the other side to be like, well, the riots and all that kind of stuff. And even part of me was like, Hey, why, why are you doing that? But then also stopping and going, wait, I've never experienced that kind of consistent violence from a society that I live in ever. And I cannot impose this purely hypothetical and theoretical idea of pacifism onto onto anyone who's experienced far more uh, violence against them than I ever have or probably will. Yeah. I mean, just my brain is just like trying to process a lot of different thoughts all at once. Um, because, you know, this radical pacifism as a movement, as a political force, it works best when it is the the folks who are being pushed down 
are, are the ones who stand and say, you know, I sur- I'm not going to fight you. And so it, it asks a lot of people who are already the victims of often, you know, all the different kinds of violence that we mentioned, economic violence, physical violence, and so on. So yes, from a place of privilege, it seems really inappropriate and wrong, morally wrong, to ask people to uh, uphold a radical pacifist idea or notion. The only time that it would seem like it could be morally justified would be from the margins, you know, maybe in relationship to other people from the margins. But to be in the center and to go around and say, oh, you know, everybody should be pacifists, you know, that that may not be something that morally can be justified. I don't know. I'm just like thinking out loud. And then again, (laughs) wondering, okay, so what does that do for my views right now and my convictions? and the high horse that I like to get on. Right. It's where, you know, all of our ideas are stuck between this middle place of ideal and reality. <laughs> and, <laughs> and how do we maneuver through them when we're smacked in the face with reality, but yet also strive to create the ideal? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think just like, you know, the conversation that I was talking about and, and the importance of being in the company of people who think very differently and and kind of preparing ahead of time to be in a situation like that. Well, I think every community has its its uh, good parts and bad parts. I, I think immediately about the Amish community, who they actively prepare as a community how to forgive. And when there was an act of pretty severe gun violence against that community, somewhere on the East Coast, it was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And... You know, some of the young people were gunned down and by this lone person who wasn't very well. And this community went to the family's home of the perpetrator, not right away, but they went to the home to offer forgiveness and to build a relationship. And they were asked, how in the world did you do this? They said, we, we prepare. This is part of our practice. That may be one of the missing pieces that causes us to wonder, like, is this even possible? And if we're not prepared, then yeah, it's it's really not possible. And again, I don't know how I would ever be prepared <laughs> to to be someone who responds in in that kind of a compassionate, like superhuman way. But that seems to be an integral key with the the moments of history where we've seen that revealed. Yeah, and I think too it comes down to you know our theology, like who is God to us? Is God an, a supreme being in sense of having a controlling power that uh, has a right and a wrong side, a vision of what's right and wrong? So God is like the ultimate moralist, and is somehow justified or or somehow the bodies on earth the communities on earth that are on god's right side are justified in enacting violence against any other community that could be in whatever vision we think is the wrong side 
And, you know, if, if that's one's view of God, that's highly problematic. And certainly the way a lot of stories are told in the Bible are, are that God is, is that way. Because when you tell a story of God, you often want to tell the story of God in one's own image. And it would make sense that uh, you want God to be on your side and you want God to be, you know, pulling for you whenever there's a conflict. But if that's how God's power works, then we're all sort of doomed, I think, honestly. So it's important for us as Christians, especially those who identify as progressive Christians who want to see a larger democratization of just our own communities, let alone, you know, maybe we want to see it uh, go further than that. But certainly in our own communities, you know, if God, if God's power works that way, then how are we the people? How, how is it that we all can work together collectively if there's still only one supreme being that's sort of orchestrating and controlling everything? It's very uh, counter-philosophical, <laughs> counter-metaphysical. And I think that's where a lot of us find, you know, in conversations with each other. And certainly in the United States right now, probably for lots of years, we find this cognitive dissonance. There's like this one idea theologically, and then there's this other idea maybe maybe politically or philosophically on the ground, and they don't go together well. And I can say I am certainly guilty of that because like I just revealed earlier, I don't want to think about war and peace politically or socially or theologically. And I, I think that they those things do need to align. Like that's part of doing the work. How does one's idea of war and peace align theologically, socially, and politically, geopolitically as as well? So um, there's a lot of work to do, I think, at least for me. Right. And then, well, and, you know, I think that when we're talking about a large portion of Christianity within our country, those things align in eschatology mm-hmm. because you have a very specific well, not a given specific, but a very specific interpretation of what the end is supposed to look like and how we get there. And it can easily be a place, uh, a philosophical space that can lead to a lot of violence because you can justify a lot more in that space because they it's it's almost like it's outside of, of our moment. So if you convince yourself that every moment is the end, you can do a lot more and give yourself a lot more wiggle room to, to cause a lot of damage. And and you also can limit voting rights. Yep. Right? Because you have a an eschatological vision that doesn't really include democracy. It doesn't really include a collective body of people working together to make the future what they decide it's going to be together. In fact, it explicitly works against any kind of yeah. global unity. So it's not aligned. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not aligned anyways with like our, with what the, which cracks me up because often the founding fathers of America are cited as being these Christians, but their ideals are certainly not aligned with the um, evangelical Christian sense of, you know, God and country. And, and not to mention just the, the human side of it, like there's satisfaction in watching a Nazi get punched in the face 
and you can like the i mean it's it's there 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 is like a a, a sense of of relief or a sense of justice even when when violence is perpetrated against someone who we feel deserves it and it's an expression that's even you know in our own text you know specifically the psalms there's a lot of like thankfulness for the destruction of enemies and that's a that's a real human emotion from someone who is constantly victimized or on the margins yeah that that video you know i think everybody's probably seen that video if you have a device that has data on it (laughs) any kind and you you know earlier we were talking about is violence limited to physicality and you know certainly neo-nazi ideology is violent and the language is violence and i know if i was standing there and he was spewing a lot of hateful things at me and some other dude walked up and was like uh uh-uh, uh punched him in the face it would probably make me feel pretty good to know that i had somebody you know in the same space that was willing to you know put their body on the line to to be in solidarity in a in a very tangible way so yeah this is this is a big and messy and complicated one. But I I also wonder, I think part of the tension that I'm feeling is I don't want to shrug my shoulders and abdicate my belief system to context. I would like to get to the place where I, I felt like I had some absolutes on this and places where I wouldn't equivocate regardless of the context or circumstance. And I, as I say that, I don't like it. it. It doesn't feel good to me to 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 want to go there, you know, because I I tend to be somebody who wants to do rather than to be. Yeah, context is important, but I I don't know that it can it can be in quote quote excuse. Well, from a process theology perspective, I think there's some basic principles that can be helpful. In creating some kind of guiding questions, <laughs> um, maybe not create absolutes, but at least help to provide a framework. And in a process theolo- theology perspective, God's power is not dictatorial power. It's not this power of even seeing the future in some sort of defined manner where, you know, we're all part of this unfolding destiny that God has orchestrated. Instead, God is in it with us in the trenches, offering the best possible outcome for everyone. And at the end, when it's time to perish into God's self, really in that passage between now and whatever's next, the question is going to be something like, did you use what you were given on this earth to promote the co-flourishing? of as many creatures as possible. And war is about as antithetical to co-flourishing. Violence is about as antithetical to co-flourishing as anything that we know that exists. Maybe in some cases, there's a, could be an argument for this actor this violent actor without preventing that violent actor from continuing 
it actually creates a larger death, a larger violence. I don't know. Maybe that's what just war theory is about, right? Um, but I think I think that process theology and other ways of thinking about God, other than this power mongering God in the sky, can help us with some of those guiding frameworks. And I don't know. Can we get out of context? I don't know. I sort of think we can't. I think it's ha- always has to be contextual, moment by moment, situation by situation, with some very specific guiding questions to help us know what to do in those moments and situations. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like I stand between the two of you because my gut reaction says exactly that. Like, context is important. But I also like yearn for a consistency, something I can find shelter in within myself that, uh, you know, that provides me some sort of like, Hey, I, I am the same person. I know I change, but I'm still me. That's a, uh, I guess that's just where we all live all the time. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure that context and absolutes are not mutually exclusive or, or, are they enemies to one another? I, I, I think the practice of doing the hard work is just foreign to us, by and large. Well, on on that cheery note, <laughs> I think at this point we're going to be running running in theological circles. But I think that uh, you know, striving for co flourishing is a as good of a place to end and is a good thing to strive for than anything as we talk about so many things that are uncertain but also visceral at the same time well let us know what you think uh, you can add your voice to this particular conversation and comment in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 198 that's irenacast.com slash 198 in the show notes you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the ways to add your voice to this conversation And if you haven't already, email us your questions, comments, concerns, anything towards the show where our 200th episode is right around the corner and we would love to hear from you. Uh, So we're going to make that kind of a a Q&A extravaganza. So send us in your questions and uh, we're really looking forward to it. So you can do that at podcast at irenacast.com or all of our social media links are on the show notes. So on the other side of the music, we're going to be playing a brand new segment. See how this goes called Connecting the Dots. And we are on the other side of the music. Uh, So brand new segment called Connecting the Dots. So how this is going to work is each of us are going to present two opposing ideas, opposing items, and the other two hosts are going to have to try to come up with some sort of spin, some sort of yarn to bring those two things together in a way that sort of makes sense or is filled with enough charisma to make you feel like it makes sense. (laughs) However, we're going to work that. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, we're going to try this out. This is kind of one of those things. I think this is very relative. This is very uh, connected to our conversation in the sense that this hypothetically could work, but also if reality slaps us in the face, it could be extremely awkward. Either way, we hope that you're entertained. (laughs) And Your charisma you... will carry us, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, all right. So, uh, Rajiv, why don't you start us out? I feel like. Okay. Great. I have a good one. Um, peas. So, you know, the, the vegetable. Okay. 
peas and nunchucks. Peas and nunchucks. Peas and nunchucks. I wish everyone could see the expressions <laughs> as they're thinking. How do those things connect? I had to make this really tough. Well, I wanted my judging to be fun. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I think I got it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take this from a from a culinary standpoint. Um, you know, one of the things that I struggle with most in the kitchen is my knife skills, precision, precision it takes to, you know, cut something exactly. My slices are never as even as I want them to be. My dices are never fine enough. So one exercise that you could potentially try is that sometimes we try to hone our skills by finding something fine and sharp, but perhaps if we can hit cut something small with something large and blunt, then we can work on our accuracy. And then when we go back to the regular knife skills, it becomes second nature. So I suggest next time taking those frozen peas out of the freezer and instead of slicing them and working on your knife skills in a small way, get yourself some nunchucks. And if you can split a pea with a nunchuck, then you are ready to move on to you're you're ready to move on to your knife and try that as well. All right, interesting, interesting, Bonnie. Okay. So I'm going to go with um, uh, what, what's the name of the teacher in Karate Kid? Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi. I'm going with a Mr. Miyagi approach. All right. So anybody studying the art of using nunchucks long before you ever get to hold those nunchucks in your hand. You have to take a bag of peas and practice those fine motor skills with those index and finger and thumb. And you have to take each pea, frozen, sure, frozen works best. And you have to build a, par- a pyramid with the peas. The entire bag of peas have to be fashioned into a pyramid on the counter before you're allowed to pick up the nunchucks so that you have those fine motor skills down. So when those nunchucks are put in your hand, you will be far more adept at using them. Both very interesting perspectives. Neither of them particularly humorous, (laughs) which I'm sad about. (laughs) Um, But I actually, I actually really like Bonnie's approach because before you pick up, you know, weaponry that can do harm and break things, to have some discipline and careful practice before you pick up a deadly instrument. So uh, Bonnie's the winner on this round. Mm. She went the opposite route of plowshares and pruning hooks. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I will take my loss with grace and uh, Bonnie. (laughs) And forgiveness. (laughs) Yes. Well, forgiveness takes time. All right, Bonnie, you are. All right, you want me to go? Yeah. I don't think mine's going to be as hard. Um, Grapevines and carpet. Grapevines and carpet. Um, Both become something very interesting when knotted in patterns. Or the carpet is the result of that, but you could do something similar with grapevines. 
Man, that's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, Reggie. <laughs> I don't really even know what you mean. I'm prepared Both for the loss. Both become Yeah, no, because the, car- the carpet is already knotted and twisted and braided and into a pattern. And I'm thinking you could do something similar with grapevines, but that's not necessarily, you know, it's not going to be super comfortable to walk on, but. Um, so you could make grapevines into a carpet. Is that what you're trying yeah, to say? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and I really don't like that idea. <laughs> uh, okay, Jeff, it's all, it's all on you. All right. One it's of yours gr- to lose, man. One of the greatest fears <laughs> of any parent is a toddler with grape juice. You never know when <laughs> that it's going to spill. And I say, in stores, they just should just start selling bundles of grapevines to save your carpet. Now you say, well, why not just buy grapes? Why need the whole vine? Because every parent knows it's very difficult keeping your children entertained and you don't want to plop them in front of a, <laughs> a screen. So you pull the grapes, they eat the grapes instead of drink them, save your carpet and use your carpet for jump roping with the vines that are left over as a toy and a way to reduce their energy from the sugar high of the grapes themselves. So a toy, nutrition, and entertainment all in one for the sake of your carpet. Thanks, Jeff. I actually feel better about mine now. (laughs) (laughs) I think the toddler story about having a grapevine is the grapevine growing in your house no you buy them at the store they don't sell you don't sell bundles of grapes anymore you even buy like bundles right. of the vines but where are you growing your grapevine to save your carpet oh well, some farmer down the road is doing it i'm just oh, buying okay. it yeah okay. i'm not a farmer i see what you're saying that would be way more <laughs> i am not good with that stuff Well, I'm all about kids and figuring out how food is grown and where it comes from and saving the carpet at the same time makes a lot of sense. So Jeff wins by like 100 points. Oh, wow. All right. (laughs) Well, you may not have been impressed, Rajiv, but your wife was. So (laughs) that's 100 points. I'm I'm happy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in the lead. Right. I am by far in the lead. Unless I decide to award someone more, like 101 points, I guess we can just declare me the winner. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was just comparing the two stories. (laughs) I don't know if I have the authority to actually grant more points overall. Well, the consensus of of our our missing member this week, Casey, you have all authority. (laughs) Well... (laughs) All right. Um, Okay. Two opposing ideas. Would it be too meta if I just said warm peace? (laughs) Because clearly we decided (laughs) we have no answer for that. (laughs) All right. Um, A car and a banana. I got this one. You're going to probably steal mine. A little bit of a true story, actually. Sadly, Mm. I'm going to be revealing something about myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you have seen the first Beverly Hills Cop, which I did see when I was not supposed to go to movies, and it was it's just so bad um, that I thought I was probably going to hell for sure. But in that movie is a great idea 
you can stick a banana in the tailpipe of a car (laughs) and it will choke out the engine supposedly. And so if you're very like, you don't want somebody to follow you or maybe you're sneaking out of the house, which is like what I did a lot when I was a teenager because I couldn't do anything fun otherwise. And I wanted to not have my parents like have them have them sort of home bound for a while you could stick the banana in the tailpipe of the car and then when they start the car they won't be able to it'll just like keep choking out the engine it's a very useful tool a banana in relation to a car to make sure that the car doesn't go anywhere if you don't want it to and nobody can figure out what's wrong with the car until they finally realize that there's a banana in the tailpipe did you attempt this <laughs> i did and how did it work it doesn't work very well, <laughs> but I attempted it. I just got to say, Bonnie, <laughs> as soon as you started your sentence, I realized, holy crap, I'm a big <laughs> idiot because that is like the most obvious connection in the history of the world, a car and yeah. a banana. And I Beverly Hills Cup. didn't. <laughs> well, I thought maybe we were, Damon were too Wayans. young to know about that. Damon Wayne's like, go ahead, take the bananas. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like that. I mean, even I don't even think that's a that's just Bever- like I remember it from Beverly Hills. Cop, I but saw that movie like fifty times. That's like a thing. Like that. Yeah. I I can't believe that I my ignorance is on. It's display. a good one. I'm but I'm really I proud of myself to, for thinking of it. You so. have to shove enough bananas; it actually clogs the pipe. It doesn't like sticking work. one in there. You got enough room around it, probably. And the bananas are curved but the tailpipe isn't yeah but so it doesn't they, work very they smush, well they smush and a potato actually, is a better you know instrument. what's the worst thing potato is if you're like hiding because you want to see if it works or not and so you're mm-hmm. hiding in the bushes or whatever and nothing and then happens the push no what happens is the banana shoots out of the tailpipe and it hits an innocent bystander <laughs> who's trying to walk by right now you've so, perpetrated violence on so someone. So you perpetrated <laughs> violence instead of actually accomplishing what you were hoping to and it's a Big, like, especially oh if it's kind God. of a green banana, it can oh, be. It can hurt. It can hurt. And That's the person hilarious. just drives away, runs over the banana on their way out, and there's this gross banana anyway. Which derailed so, into Looney Tunes. It's, it's <laughs> a nice idea, but. Did you know the person? Don't try who got, this at home, kids. Who got hit with the banana projectile? Did I know the person? Yeah, yeah I do. I mean, it was at my school, so I knew all the people. That's great. That's but awesome. I'm not going to ever reveal. I, yeah, the friend that I did this with hopefully isn't listening. Did the person get seriously injured? No, they were just like just scared. <laughs> yeah, scared. What is this banana scared. doing? <laughs> this flying banana. Well, Rajiv, as a uh, any non-obvious connections that oh, God. you came up I, with, I was going right. You were going too, right there so. too. Yeah. Um, but one thing I was thinking, you know, the, the banana car relationship is actually a pretty common one, particularly in cartoons. You know, there's the banana peel that spins the car out. Um, there's the car that runs over the banana. And then the inside, the fruit, the edible part shoots out like a projectile, not dissimilar to Bonnie's account. But the the banana, the banana, if used strategically, can become quite an annoyance to a driver. Now, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm not saying I know personally anyone who's ever done this. But if you take a bunch of bananas, pretty ripe ones, get some rubber gloves because this is messy. You peel them, have a bag to conceal the peelings and carry them off elsewhere. 
smash the bananas on all the windows around somebody's car late at night and they've got to get somewhere in the morning and watch the fun ensue. There you go. But only do that to an enemy or like a really best friend because they're almost the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That was always our rule for toilet papering someone's house. Make sure you do it to someone you love. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, cars and bananas are prank prankster. I'm going to declare both of you equal winners and I will revoke my hundred points that I received in the last round because of my stupidity for the suggestion of Olga. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that will make it a, uh, actually I think that makes Bonnie Bonnie wins. Bonnie wins. She does. Bonnie is declared. Um, I was, I was a little worried that when I suggested this game, Rajiv, that you were going to say kibbles and bits, but, uh, I think that, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I was close. Believe me. The reason I didn't is I think some people, think that I actually do have a rash on my inner (laughs) leg that is encroaching on that area. And it's a game. We're playing a game, people. So that's why I I stayed away from uh, skin-type illnesses or particular body parts. That was a good call. Or pizza and pineapple. I'm glad you say that, too. I thought about going there, but... (laughs) That's that's worn out. Yeah. We're... uh, now we're on bananas and cars. Yeah, right. We need to salvage our relationship, and I don't know. It's <laughs> it's it's tender when it comes to pizza. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that is going to do it for us this week. If you enjoy Renacast and would like to join the work that we're doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at renacast.com slash PayPal. We're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. Irenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. You can also support the show by simply making sure that you follow the show on whatever, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if the platform allows it, leave a rating and or review. We would really appreciate it. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. And this is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. Mm